the series uh, of what we're talking about this weekend, I'm calling It's Finally Time Someone Told You the Truth About. And tonight's topic is The Last Generation. It's time for, now it sounds a little facetious, it actually sounds a little bit uh, uh, arrogant in a way, it's fine, I I know the truth and you don't know it, I'm going to tell you that. It's kind of tongue in cheek, what I'm doing here, but I'll tell you what this grows out of. Tonight, the title is, it's time someone finally told you the truth about the last generation. Tomorrow morning, about the uh, Adventism's Invisible Gorilla. I know tomorrow morning is, you know, Visitor Sabbath and all that. Don't worry, it's visitor friendly. Even though it has Adventists right there in the title and all that, you're going to like it. Tomorrow afternoon, it's going to be, uh, it's time someone finally told you the truth about the human nature of Christ. And then the last message will be, it's finally time, some, it's time someone finally told you the truth about uh, <clears throat> the grace Uh, the grace of God, I'm sorry, grace and the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, you're going to have to bear with me through some of these, and I'll tell you what this grows out of. And you'll get a little bit more of this as we go. I've been in ministry now. Let me go back a little further. I grew up in the Adventist church. Uh, My mom and dad separated when I was young. And uh, my mom was remarried. I lived with my mom. She left the Adventist church, and I, along with her, when I was about 14 years old. So I'd gone to Adventist education up and through my eighth grade year. We left not just Adventism, but we left Christianity. We had no Christianity in our home for 10 more years after that. And the Lord, through some really amazing and miraculous events in my life, was able to redirect my attention to him. And I praise him for that. Some of you have maybe heard my testimony. I shared it when I was out here for restoration. And so I've been back in the Seventh-day Adventist Church for 22 years now. It keeps growing. Praise God for that. I will tell you that something that, especially in recent years, wearies me, and I'm not verbally inspired, so I may not say everything right. There's a saying that I think is especially fitting in our day. It says, we finally mastered the art of almost saying something. There are certain topics in our church that we're not even allowed to talk about without getting labeled and marginalized. I don't think that, and incidentally, it generally happens in the context of people who are supposed to be free thinkers. And so I recently was at a, I don't want to give everything away, I don't want to, indict anybody, but I was recently at a, a conference where there was a panel discussion on the last generation. At the end of it, I kind of felt like, wow, they almost said something. Because we're so afraid of what people might think if we say what we think about, or more than that, what's clear. Tonight I want to talk to you about, and incidentally, that panel discussion was on the last generation. And I said, this is it. I can't I've sworn, I've I've got to break my silence on this. And and when I even say that, break my silence, as I look back even in in, uh, past years in my ministry, there's certain topics that I just wouldn't get into a lot, not because I didn't believe them, not because I didn't think they were clear from Scripture, but because I knew there would be repercussions. Well, you know what? A minister can't 
just preach what people want to hear, especially in the days we're living in, especially if it's a topic that directly applies to the days we're living in. So with that said, I want to start with a word of prayer, ask the Lord to bless our time as we discuss the truth about the last generation. I'd invite you to bow your heads with me at this time, if you would, please. Father in heaven, Father, I ask tonight, as we've entered upon the hours of the Sabbath, the Holy Sabbath, you've blessed this day, Father. Your presence is with us in a special way during these hours. So, Lord, don't fail us now, and we know you won't, but I pray your spirit would be present to speak to our hearts and minds with clarity, not from a vantage point of debate, Lord, but to help us to be clear in our hearts and minds about the truth for this time. That we may be the people that you've called us to be. And we ask and pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. How many of you have heard that term, the last generation? Okay. How many of you have heard that term in a negative connotation? The last generation. The final generation uh, is another way that the term is used. Now, the term the last generation, at least in recent years, has been credited, not just the term, but uh, what's called last generation theology, has been credited to a man named M.L. Andreas. And anybody know that name? He was a, a well-known and respected scholar, pastor, evangelist, administrator, seminary teacher, and author, among other things, in the 1930s and 40s and uh, 50s. Well, I think he retired in 50 or 51. Maybe it was 49, but right around there. Now, one of M.L. Andreas's, incidentally, how many of you have the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary? Anybody have that? The commentary section on the book of Hebrews, that was written by Andreasen. He was the contributor on that particular chapter. He wrote a book called the book of Hebrews. I mean, he was had a lot that uh, people are aware of and maybe some things that they weren't. One of his most no well-known and widely circulated books, even to this day, is a book that he wrote called The Sanctuary Service, first published in 1937. The second to last chapter in that book, chapter 21, is a book entitled The Last Generation. And therefore, Andreasen became known as the last generation guy, and last generation theology grew out of Andreasen, and this is the guy who came up with it, and, and uh, incidentally um, has been blamed for much of what's gone wrong in Adventism. It's interesting that sometime later, a man by the name of Leslie Harding, anybody know that name in Adventist history? Dr. Leslie Harding. Dr. Harding was an Adventist scholar known for his work, especially on the sanctuary and other things, but he has done some fantastic things on the sanctuary. A little book of his entitled Shadows of His Sacrifice. Does anybody have that book? You ought to have that book. It's a great book on the sanctuary. But Dr. Leslie Harding, he has a little um, selected bibliography in that book, and the very first book listed with his comments is Andreasen's The Sanctuary Service, of which he says, quote, this is the best book published on the subject, period. Okay, no qualification. This is the best book except for there's some things in there. That's just to help you understand that at least for some period of time in the Adventist church, there wasn't any concern with Andreasen. Some of that came later on. Now, in an article 
And I don't have the date. This is online. You ever look up those things on the internet? You look up the Adventist Review and you read an article and you're like, when was this thing published? And it doesn't have a date on there. I guess they do that to keep it timely and fresh. But this article, I can't tell you the date, but it's an article by Dr. Angel Rodriguez, who formerly was the director of the Biblical Research Institute. It was in the Adventist Review, and the article was entitled, The Theology of the Last Generation. And this is what he wrote. And I'm just quoting a part of this article. The theology of the last generation was developed and popularized in the Adventist Church by M. L. Andreasen. Now, that's really not an accurate statement. I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I wanted to criticize uh, Dr. Rodriguez, but an understanding of a last generation existed long before Andreasen was around. And we'll talk about that a little bit this evening. This theology, he goes on to say, introduced a strong element of legalism in some sectors of the church by claiming that the character of God, maligned by Satan in the cosmic conflict, will be vindicated through the holy and perfect life of obedience of the last generation of believers. This generation will reach a level of character development unequaled in Christian history, copying perfectly in their lives what God did in Christ. Once this happens, the Lord will return. This theology seeks to explain why the Lord has not returned and the nature and purpose of Christian perfection. It is based primarily on a particular reading of the writings of Ellen G. White. So two things from Dr. Rodriguez. Number one, he says the theology came from Andreasen, and Andreasen got it from a particular reading of the writings of Ellen White. In other words, not comprehensive, not a broad reading of Ellen White, but pulling out just little things and making them say what he wanted them to say. Now that's the allegation in this particular article. A pastor friend of mine is actually doing his, right now working on, I'm not even going to give his name just because I didn't have this conversation with him, and because of the way this thing is charged, this subject, I don't know if he'd be okay with me doing it, but he's writing his doctoral dissertation on uh, Andreasen's last generation theology. He's going to write a paper on that. One of his colleagues, if I told you his name, you'd know it. And one of his colleagues, and if I told you his name, you'd probably know it as well, who is a well-known scholar in the Adventist Church, says, man, why in the world would you ever write your paper on that? That's professional suicide. Okay, now, now understand that what, what's being said here. It's not like, hey, let's study this thing out. It's like, no, 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 let's not touch that because. And there's got to come a point, especially in these days we live in as Adventists, we're not afraid to look at things and discuss things a little bit. Now, my purpose here, that's all I'm going to say. That's just a little history. I'm not here to talk about Andreasen's theology tonight. In fact, I'm going to use very little of Ellen White tonight as I talk to you about what I believe about the last generation. You know why? Because it's in the Bible. Amen. And we're going to look at the Bible tonight. And I think it's pretty clear from the Bible. There's some things I want to share with you. More than that, well, let's, let's, say, let's start with this. I want to talk tonight about the last generation, not Andreasen's last generation. I've read Andreasen's chapter. In fact, I was just going through it again recently. I think it's, it's well written. I can't, I'm not here to say, oh yeah, everything he said is, I mean, he's not a prophet of God. He's not inspired. I'm not, that's not, that's not my point. My question that I would pose is, is there anything to this concept of a last generation that's going to vindicate the character of God? Now, two things that I want to start out with tonight. One, I am absolutely certain of, and the other I'm reasonably sure of, are these, as far as the last generation is concerned. Number one, and I'm certain of this, there will be one. Amen? Amen? Yeah, we're all certain of that. Number two, and I'm reasonably sure of this, some of us will be a part of it. 
Some of us will be a part of it. Now, maybe time's going to go on longer than I imagine. That, to me, those two things make it important for us to discuss this a little bit. Now, I want to go back to some history in the Adventist church. I want to go back to the disappointment in October of 1844. Now, in October 22, 1844, of course, they thought the Lord was going to come. The Lord didn't come. The next morning, among all the believers that were trying to deal with the disappointment, there was a man named Hiram Edson. You've probably heard the name Hiram Edson, a farmer in... Uh, uh, was it upstate New York? Now I'm blanking on that. But Hiram Edson, after the disappointment, joined together with some friends that were with him for an early morning prayer meeting. It was Edson, I believe, who said that the disappointment, that the loss of all earthly friends could not have been greater than the disappointment that he felt. Now imagine that. How many of you have lost a loved one? Imagine when you lost that loved one that every one of your loved ones died at the same time. He said that couldn't have, that couldn't have compared to what they... You have to understand because when the disappointment came, they, the, the, the feeling wasn't like, oh, we got some things wrong. The feeling was this whole thing is a sham and Jesus, he may not even exist. And so they were really wrestling with this. They went out to his barn, as history tells us, he and his friends, and they prayed that the Lord would reveal to them what, where they'd gone wrong and give them some kind of evidence of his favor. And it doesn't say how long they prayed, just that they prayed until they had the assurance of the Holy Spirit that God heard their prayer and he would answer their prayer. They got up from prayer, and Hiram Edson that morning decided he was going to go out and he was going to encourage the other believers in the area. And as he struck out with a friend across one of his fields, his attention was arrested in that field by what we'll call an epiphany. Was it a vision? Was it a, I don't know, he doesn't know. He just describes it as he was going across that field. His mind was directed to something. And that's something I'm going to read from the words of Edson himself. This was printed later on in the Review and Herald of June 23, 1921. That's where I'm quoting from. He says, Heaven seemed open to my view, and I saw distinctly and clearly that instead of our high priest coming out of the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to this earth at the end of the 2300 days, he for the first time entered on that day into the second apartment of that sanctuary, and that he had a work to perform in the most holy place before coming to the earth. He continues on by saying this, And my mind was directed to the 10th chapter of Revelation, where I could see the vision had spoken and did not lie. Now, time does not permit us to go in. I'd love to go in the 10th chapter of Revelation and look what the Bible says about how in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be finished. But I want to challenge you. You go and study up that mystery of God. You study it in the Bible. You look in the spirit of prophecy. Look at our Adventist pioneers' writings, and you'll find that that finishing of the mystery of God is something they equate to what is taking place even right now in the heavenly sanctuary in the most holy place. Okay? The finishing of the mystery of God. Another way of looking at it, the Bible calls, there's several references I could give you. Uh, the one comes to my mind now is Ephesians 6.19 where Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. And you'll see that when they talk about the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's the mystery you'll find in another place. They're the same thing. So the concept of the, in other words, when Revelation says the mystery of God will be finished, what it's saying there in Revelation is there's a time coming when the work of the gospel will be finished. Now, we might hear that and say, oh, yeah, there's going to be a time when we start with the preaching of the gospel will be finished. Not the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is done for the purpose of the work of the gospel 
to do its job in the lives of believers. When Revelation talks about the mystery of God being finished, it's talking about the work of the gospel in the lives of believers being finished. You think Jesus is going to be in the, high, uh, in the heavenly sanctuary just forever up there trying to cleanse sin? You think he's ever going to get done with his job? You think this thing's just going to go on and on and on and on and then I'll, go, I'll get old and die and you'll get old and die and our kids will grow up and they'll get old and die and on and on and on? Is that how it's going to happen? No. There's going to be a last generation. And that last generation is going to be when Jesus finishes his work in the sanctuary. Now, Edson, his mind was directed to the heavenly sanctuary. And, of course, as we began to study, he studied, and O.R.L. Crozier studied, and F.B. Hahn studied, and they came up with their paper on the sanctuary, and Ellen White commented on the Daystar Extra, and the Adventist, the Advent believers at the time, they weren't Adventist, well, you could have called them Adventists, but we didn't have Seventh-day Adventists, began to study, and they came to understand that in 1844, what happened wasn't Jesus supposed to come to the earth and cleanse the earth by fire, but they realized that Jesus had moved on into the final phase of his ministry in the sanctuary in heaven. Edson's direction, his, his mind rather, was directed to the, you got to have mercy on me. I've been up till, since the equivalent of 2 a.m. your time today, so I'm hoping my thought, don't, I'm not saying that for pity, just sympathy. <coughs> I guess it's the same thing. Anyway, so, <clears throat> But Edson's mind was directed to the sanctuary, and of course, then as Seventh-day Adventists, we, you know, one of the things we say as a Seventh-day Adventist, one of the things that makes us unique is what we call the sanctuary message, right? What is the sanctuary message? Have you ever thought about that? What is the sanctuary message? I've heard all kinds of things presented in the sanctuary message. I've heard people try to teach every Adventist doctrine from the sanctuary. Now, I'm not going to criticize that, but I'm going to tell you, I don't think that's really what the sanctuary message was. You won't find Ellen White doing that. You'll never find it in any of her books. You won't find the pioneers doing that as a rule. And what I mean by that is this. For Edson, when his mind was directed to the heavenly sanctuary, he was directed to what Christ was doing in the heavenly sanctuary. Okay? In other words... They wondered what happened with Jesus. He came to the earth, he died on the cross, he ascended to heaven, what's going on? And they were directed there and they saw this is what Jesus is doing now in heaven. Continuing on with his priestly ministry. The sanctuary message. Now I want to share with you a statement from the book Early Writings that Ellen White makes regarding the sanctuary, regarding the subjects uh, this is in a section called the messengers. It's a little section of early writings called the messengers, speaking of those who would be carrying the message at the end of time. I'm reading now. There are many precious truths contained in the word of God, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. I have seen the danger of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. Simply stated, there's a lot we can study in the Bible, but there are certain things that are especially important in the context of the time we're in. Now, you may be like myself. You may, I, I don't know how many of you, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not the fastest reader. I'm not a slow reader, but I'm not a fast reader. I mean, I know guys are like, you know, they take a book about this size and, you know, they read it over lunch. And I'm like, how did you do that? It takes me a week. I don't know if anybody relates to that. I got a lot of books I want to read, and I get a stack of them, and I, they're sitting around, right? But I want to keep in my Bible, and what have you. The thing is, I, what happens is I have to prioritize. I say, I can't cover all that. I got a priority. Well, Ellen White is saying there's a lot of truths in the Bible. But there are certain things that are especially important 
for the time that we're living in. Not to say anything else is unimportant, but she says it is present truth that we need now. And there's danger of the messengers running off on this point and on that point. Are you with me so far? All right. Now, she continues, Satan will here take every possible advantage to injure the cause. But such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement and show what our present position is, establish the faith of the doubting, and give certainty to the glorious future. Mark those words, glorious future. Think about that for a minute. Now this is in this, what did she say? The sanctuary? Did you get the rest of it? The sanctuary in? Connection with? The 2300 days. This is important. We're going to hit on it in a minute. She didn't just say, hey, the sanctuary, this is an important subject. This is, one, this is present truth. She said the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. We're going to get to that in a minute. Then she followed up by saying the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Where do we find that in the Bible? Revelation 14, 12. It's the end of the third angel's message, right? The third angel's message starts in verse 9. And I saw a third angel flying in the midst of heaven, or a third angel followed them, warning against the mark of the beast, what have you. And then it says in verse 12, here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now she uses that language here. These things, sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, these would give certainty to the past Advent movement. They would establish the faith of the doubting and give certainty to the glorious future. And then she finishes by saying, well, I'm going to finish this statement by saying, where she says, these I have frequently seen. What does frequently mean? More than what? More than once. More than twice. I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. These were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. Notice she didn't say such subjects as the sanctuary, but the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. What does that connection do to the subject of the sanctuary? What does it mean, the sanctuary in connection with? What does the 2300 days do to the subject of the sanctuary? That's the first question. The second question is, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, Revelation 14, 12, what does this have to do with the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days? Because these are the principal subjects. This is what's supposed to absorb the attention of the messengers. This is supposed to be the message that's given. Frequently, she had seen this. Let's look at the first one. When you talk about the sanctuary and you connect it with the 2300 days, what does that do? When did the 2300 days end? 1844. How do we know that? Daniel what? Daniel 8.14. And Daniel 8.14 said at the end of the 2300 days, what would happen? Sanctuary would be cleansed. So when you take the subject of the sanctuary and connect it to 18.44, what does it do? It focuses you in on not the typical day of atonement, but the anti-typical day of atonement, right? Now you're not just talking about the sanctuary. I mean, we talk about the sanctuary. You can say, oh, we're talking about the tent stakes. We're going to the coverings. There was a goat skin. There was a ram skin. There was this, that, and the other candlesticks. No. Once you connect it with the 2300, now what? You're talking about the day of atonement. Right? Not the typical, the anti-typical, but we want to understand this 
We want to look briefly at the typical Day of Atonement. Get back in Leviticus 23. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'm sorry, Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. In Leviticus chapter 16, that's our Day of Atonement, one of them anyway, Day of Atonement chapters in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Um, I want you to, I'm not reading this whole thing, you can do that at your leisure, but we're going to go to verse 29, Leviticus 16, 29. Do you have it? Leviticus 16, 29. Now, follow carefully with me. This shall be a statute forever for you, in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to do what? To cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Notice verse 33 carefully. Then he shall make atonement for the what? The holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. And I'm not going to read the rest of that. I want to ask you this question from what we read. What two things... Notice there are two primary things cleansed. What were they? I'm going to cleanse you from all your sins before the Lord. So that was what? The people. What was the other thing cleansed? The building. The tent. I don't know if you've ever given thought to this. I remember the first time this hit me, I thought, well, why in the world is that a big deal? Why are you cleansing? Mean, isn't this about the cleansing of the people? Why the tent? Why is that important? I mean, we got the people. They're taken care of. They've cleansed you from all your sin. Oh, but now we're going to go clean the tent. Oh, well, it needed to be washed. The blood needed to be washed. No, it wasn't a washing of blood. Something you have to understand is, understand the process of the sanctuary. When a sinner would come with his sacrificial animal or her sacrificial animal. If that sacrificial, if the blood was, if the, pardon me, when the person came for forgiveness and they confessed sin over the head of the animal, what they were doing was they were figuratively transferring their sin to the animal. Okay, now the animal is representative of Christ. So he became the sin bearer figuratively in that, that was what it was teaching. Then the animal was slain, the blood was caught, and the blood was taken now as bearing the sin of that individual, and it was taken into the sanctuary. And the blood became a vehicle, if you will, to transfer not the blood into the sanctuary, but it was a symbol of transferring the sin into the sanctuary. So then on the Day of Atonement, it wasn't that the sanctuary was being cleansed from blood on the Day of Atonement. You follow me? It was being cleansed from what on the Day of Atonement? Sin, okay, the blood was... So when we're talking about the Day of Atonement here, it's like, okay, we're going to cleanse the people, and then we're going to cleanse the building. Your cleansing of the building is not about washing down the building. There's something significant here that we need to understand. Again, because this is the type, and the type is teaching us something that really uh, uh, comes clear when we look at the anti-type, okay? I want you to think about it. The process I just described. If the sinner... Put yourself in the place, 
So it shouldn't be hard because when you confessed your sin to Jesus and accepted him as your savior, it would have been equivalent in those days to bringing that sacrificial animal. You remember when you accepted Jesus as your savior? Have you sinned since then? It's a silly question, isn't it? So what happens now when you come and you confess your sins and, and you go free, you confess your sins over the head of the animal and then the, the, the animal's slain, you slay the animal, the blood is taken by the priest into the sanctuary, you go free and then you sin again. Who do you think is the first one to call that? Flag on the play, if you will. Can I use that terminology? It's almost Super Bowl weekend, so it's like, it is Super Bowl weekend. Not that I'm going to be watching it. Amen. Somebody could. Anyway, if, what does that mean? Who's, who's going to be the first one who's going to be like, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that? The devil's going to be right there saying, hey, you, you just forgave that person. How can you forgive that person? And they're off doing this thing. Look. And he knows what we do because he tempts us to do it and he calls us every time, right? So when we sin, after we have been forgiven by God, what happens? Who bears responsibility for that? Jesus wasn't just a sin bearer on Calvary. God, even now, bears responsibility. What happens when I'm standing here? I'm a minister of the gospel and I sin. And the devil says, ah, look at this guy. Who bears responsibility? The Lord does. And if you, and I don't have time to unfold all this, but I think a simple reading of the sanctuary, when you look at the sanctuary, what was at the heart of the sanctuary? What was the, what was the most, I'm trying not to give you the answer here, what was the most focal part of the sanctuary? Like if you're taking the whole structure, what's the one that's really highlighted the most? I mean, the word's right there, right? The most <laughs> holy place, right? I mean, if you have a place that's called the holy place and a place that's called the most holy, which one's more important? That's not hard to figure out, right? And what's in the most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant. And what's in the heart of the Ark of the Covenant? What's inside of it? The Ten Commandment Law of God. Well, what's the significance of that? Listen to me carefully. Law is the foundation of every government that exists. If there's a government, it governs by something, and that something is law. And when you see law, incidentally, what, what, inside the ark is the law of God. What happened on top of the ark on that mercy seat? What is it? The Shekinah glory, which was the presence of God, would come and rest between the cherubim on the top. In other words, that was figurative of the throne of God and what's underneath. Well, the law of God, it only makes sense. Any king's rule is going to be based and founded on his law. Every government is founded on law. The picture we have of the structure of the sanctuary is a picture of the government of God that has been attacked and maligned since sin entered the whole picture. Right? God was challenged with his law. It was too difficult, etc., etc. When the sin is transferred to the sanctuary, what it's saying is God's government bears the reproach every time we sin. Until this whole thing... See, salvation, we, we'd start talking about salvation. Salva All we care about is whether I'm going to make it in. Salvation is far more than you and me making it in. Because if I make it in and you make it in, but these lies that Lucifer told in the beginning aren't cleared up, guess what? It's not going to matter. You go back to the great controversy. What caused the great controversy? Me sinning? Then me getting saved isn't going to fix it. 
It's the accusations and the rebellion of Lucifer that started it, and that has to be cleared up. That's all figured in the sanctuary. When the sin was transferred to the sanctuary, until the Day of Atonement, and on the Day of Atonement it was cleansed and taken out and put on the head of the scapegoat. The picture is that God takes responsibility for the sin problem, but one day he's going to put all the blame where it belongs. You follow that? Okay, so when Edson's mind was directed to the sanctuary, when Ellen White says the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, our minds should be directed. This is where our focus is. Jesus is doing a work in heaven's most holy place like the high priest did in the earth, cleansing not just the people, but the sanctuary. God bears the reproach for our sin. And let me give you two examples. One I'm going to give you, one I'm not going to look up, and one I will, just for sake of time. If you go to the book of Joshua, don't go to the book of Joshua, but if you were to go to the book of Joshua chapter 5, you'll find that the children of Israel, when they were in the wilderness, none of the children born in the wilderness were circumcised. I don't know if you're aware of that. When they finally crossed over to the Jordan, God told Joshua, Joshua, now you take those who were born in the wilderness and never circumcised, because that was a covenant thing between them and God, and you bring them and you circumcise them, and when you circumcise them, it's going to roll away the reproach of Egypt from my people. Now, that's Joshua 5, 1 through 9. You can go and read it later. You're going to roll away the reproach of Egypt. Now, what was the reproach of Egypt? And I'll give you a reference here. Again, you can look it up later. Exodus 32, right during the golden calf era. God was going to, right? They came, Moses came down from the mountain and the people were dancing around a golden calf and God said, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses says, God, you can't destroy them. If you destroy them, the Egyptians are going to say he wasn't strong enough to bring them in. And so when they finally came in, God said, Joshua, you circumcise them and roll away the reproach of Egypt because I was strong enough to bring them into the promised land. Okay, there was a reproach upon God himself when his people were not yet in the promised land. You follow that? You're probably doing some adding and subtracting on that in your own heads. So God bears the reproach when his people are unfaithful. Let's look at one other place in the book of Romans. Here I will have you look this one up, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And we're looking at verse 21. Starting in verse 21. Romans 2, 21. The Bible says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Now notice verse 24, and he's quoting actually from, from uh, I believe it's Isaiah. He says, for the name of God is what? Blasphemed among the who? Gentiles because of you as it is written. Or more specifically, if you look that word up, the way the, the, the word here used for blasphemy is a word that means reviled. God's name is reviled among the Gentiles. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to professed followers of God. And he said, look, you guys say you do this, but you, you, you say one thing, but you're doing the other. You're, 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 diso you're disobeying God in all the areas you say a person should obey God in. The name of God is reviled among the Gentiles because of you. Okay, the point, the simple point is this. 
Our lives can bring dishonor upon God and his cause. Okay? But the good news is the opposite is also true. The opposite is also true. Case in point, the story of Job. Okay? One of the most powerful stories to this day in the Bible. If you read the story of Job, I mean, Job is a fascinating story. Where Job is... Ch- no, I'm not, I, I want to break into a sermon on Job. I'm not going to do that. But simply, I want to simply put this. In the beginning of the, of the story of Job, here's what's interesting. When you open up the story of Job and you're reading there, it says that God is meeting with these sons of God. And then it says Satan comes into this meeting. And God says, where did you come from? And you remember what he said? From where? From the earth. Where was this meeting not taking place? On the earth. Because Satan came from the earth to come to this meeting. So these sons of God are not all a bunch of people on the earth. They're heavenly beings. And here comes Satan, crashes the party, right? Where'd you come from? I came from, from the earth, from walking to and fro on it. Now that's all he says. And then the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? The whole, the whole concept, in other words, it tells us right away that there has been an ongoing dialogue here about something. You don't just jump into, the, hey, have you thought about this? No, there's been a discussion that's been going on. And that discussion is something like this. And you see it as, you, as the book of, of Job unfolds, the story of Job unfolds. Nobody wants to serve you, God. Your rules are too hard and strict and it's miserable. Everything is just so, has to be so, you know, uh, you've got to loosen up a little bit. Nobody serves you because they want to serve you. Well, have you considered my servant Job? And you know that's the discussion because as soon as God says that, Satan says, does Job serve God what? For nothing? The only reason he serves you is because he gets this, 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 and this. But it's interesting to me, and the point I would want you to get from the story of Job is God. I don't know how to frame this, how to say this. God was glad to have a man like Job that he could point to. When the devil came, God was confident, which is this is this baffles my mind. God was confident in a human being they could point to and say, hey, have you considered Job? I know you're not going to get one over on Job. And the devil said, oh, you're wrong. I will get one over on Job. And he tried everything he could. And the testimony of Scripture is, in all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Absolutely incredible. And so Job becomes, just like the Bible says that our lives can bring dishonor upon God in the same way, when we choose to be faithful to God, our lives can bring honor to God. Now, anytime we get into this discussion, what's going to happen is somebody say, oh, so you're saying that we're going to have to be so perfect that we've got to... Listen, let's use the word faithful. And let me even make a clarification. We're going to talk more about this this weekend. I just, I don't want to give the wrong impression. But what Job, what, you know, you read the book of Job, and Job had questions. And when I read the book of Job, Job had a lot of complaints. It's not like he didn't complain or anything. But Job was faithful. And God knew Job would be faithful. And when we are faithful to choose 
God, then God will do in us and through us and for us what we can't do for ourselves. The reason I say this, we, get, we start to talk about faithfulness and people say, oh, now you're going to give me a guilt trip and lay perfection on me and we're going to start getting perfectionistic and we throw all this stuff around. And we've done this for years in Adventism. And you're going to start making us feel like we've got to be this. And, and Some Adventists act like they don't have a Savior. You understand? People, oh, you know, I can't, we can't live like that. Right. That's why we have a Savior. Right? But, but the idea is, for some, they want a Savior who winks at our sin instead of gives us power to live above the sin. You say, but, you know, we can, how are we going to be faithful like Job was? How are we supposed to, I mean, God's going to count on us. I'm going to let him down. Yes, you would. So would I. Thank God we have a Savior who can save to the uttermost all who come. And that's what he's doing right now in the heavenly sanctuary. That's what he's doing. He's not up there just winking at our sin. He's up there saying, hey, look, you look to me and I'll make you faithful. And he has a vested interest in it like he did with Job because he wants to be able to point to those who will choose him above everything else. He knew Job would. It's no coincidence that Ellen White, writing of the book of Job, said, this is in Signs of the Times, February 19, 1880, that Job would be, quote, read with deepest interest by the people of God until the close of time. Of course, because it picks up this picture. Now, another place, one other that I want to look at, refer you to, on this idea of God's, the the, the faithfulness of, of his people vindicating his goodness and his character Oh, i got to be careful with that. We're going to talk about this tomorrow. I get, t- I get tired of caveats. What I mean by that is, we've got to couch everything. Have you noticed that? We've got to throw it out there. Do I really have to say, now you know, we can't, we're not going to be saved by our own works. Now you know we can't do this in our own strength. Do we really have to keep doing that? You know exactly what I'm saying. But I go into it and I'm like, I don't want somebody to get away, go away from here and say, well, he said we're going to be saved by what we do. No, that's not what I said. So let's be clear on that. So when I talk about, maybe I should better say this, and this passage will make it clear. Just as in the case of Job, it's not that God's people vindicate his goodness, but God vindicates his goodness through his people. Okay. Now, Ezekiel, chapter 36, go there with me, verse 22. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Now notice, this is so phenomenal. This actually brings both sides of it in. Ezekiel 36, 22 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for what? My holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. So same picture again. God's name is being dishonored because his people who profess to follow him really aren't being faithful. So God's going to do something. Verse 23, And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, 
which you have profaned in their midst. Now here it comes, right? You can feel it. You've profaned my name. I'm tired of it. I'm going to do something about it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy you for profaning my name. That's what you would expect, but that's not what happens. Well, listen to what he, what he does. He's about to do something. You've profaned my name. I'm going to sanctify my, my name, and here's how. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Hallowed, made holy. God says, I'm going to, in other words, when you are made to be holy, faithful people, the nations will know that I'm the Lord. Why will they know that? Because they know it's not you and they know it's not me, right? They're not going to look at Mark Howard and say, look, he became holy. He must really have worked hard at that. That's not what they're going to say. They're going to say, that guy never could have become holy. I know he couldn't have come. That must be the power of God. Amen? Same with you, same with me. This is what God, look, this is not, I'm not reading Ellen White. The Bible says, God says, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, and you read on, he talks about how he's going to take away their idols and wash them from their filthiness. And he's going to cause them to walk in his ways. And that's going to be the evidence to the whole world, to the whole universe, that I'm God. They're going to know, the nations are going to know that I'm God when they see you hallowed, when they see me, rather, hallowed in you before their eyes. Now, I'm jumping over some things that, uh, I'm going to tell you, just, there's, a lot, there's a lot of stuff in this context. So let, let's, let's review some of the things we looked at. When you look at the sanctuary and the sanctuary message, what is the sanctuary message? What is it? Well, I mean, what did Jesus go into the most holy place to do? You hear, the, you hear the arguments today. The thing is, hey, look, it was all done at the cross, right? Jesus finished everything he needed to finish on the cross. God was vindicated on the cross. Everything was done on the cross. Okay, answer me this question. Why hasn't he come back yet? I mean, my Savior was praying, Father, my desire is that those who you have given me be with me where I am. Did something change? Right? It's all been done since 31 A.D. What are we waiting on? This is what some people will say. Well, we're waiting on the gospel to be preached. Now, I love what A.T. Jones... Anybody know that name, A.T. Jones? A.T. Jones preached a powerful sermon in the 1903 General Conference session on uh, at least what has been titled since is what it means to be a church member. And this is what he said. Look, we can preach that thing for 10,000 years and the Lord's never going to come. If that's all that happens, he said, it's not enough to just preach the gospel. The goal is to preach the gospel. And that by preaching the gospel, there's a people that are ready to meet him when he comes. Seventh-day Adventists, when we look to the sanctuary, the significance of the sanctuary is we believe in the cross of Calvary. But the work that was done on the cross of Calvary is not made effective in the lives of the believer without the work of the high priest, which was also a a taught in the whole parable of the sanctuary in the Old Testament. You never have a situation where somebody brings their sacrifice to the sanctuary, slay the lamb, and then they all go home. The priest had to take the blood of the lamb, had to take it into the sanctuary. The priestly work of Jesus had to be accomplished. Seventh-day Adventists look at the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days and realize that Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, went to carry out his priestly work, first in the holy place, then in the most holy place. What's he doing? Simply put this, he's putting away sin. Look at it in the book of Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We've got a couple more things we're going to look at here. Hebrews chapter 9. 
And starting in verse 24. Hebrews 9.24, you have it? Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into where? Heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, what? For us, those words are important, for us, as our representative. Just like as the earthly high priest was representative in the sanctuary on earth, Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, an earthly temple, he's entered into the presence of God in the heavenly temple for us, to appear in the presence of God for us as our representative, as our heavenly high priest. Now notice what it goes on to say. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He would then have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Now zero in on this part especially. But now, once at the end of the ages he has appeared... Speaking of his first advent, he has appeared to do what? Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So according to this passage, why did Jesus sacrifice himself? To put away sin. Is he going to do it? Where is he going to put sin away? What sin is he going to put away? Is he going to put your sin away? Or are you excluded from this? See, this is what we do. We get in these debates. I mean, I can't, I can't believe Christians debate this. Oh, I don't know. I, don't, I think we're just going to keep on sinning. Whoa, 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 whoa. What did he come to do? You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. He came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what he did. That's why he did it. Is he going to accomplish it? Well, I don't know. Have a little faith in the word. Now notice it. It doesn't end there. It says he came... And appeared once to put away sin. Now the once is contrasting, you'll see in a moment. Once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it appoint, is it appointed uh, for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who, what? My Bible says eagerly wait for him, he will appear, what? A second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Now, there's a lot of filler in there, but the idea is this. He appeared once to put away sin. He's going to come the second time apart from sin. Now, if you're reading in different translations, you might, it might not say apart from sin. It might say this, without reference to sin. It might say not to deal with sin. All saying the same thing. In other words, Paul's saying this. Jesus is our high priest. He's appeared in the presence of God. He came to this earth and sacrificed himself to put away sin. He went to heaven to finish that as our high priest. When he comes the second time, he comes apart from sin, without reference to sin, not to deal with sin, because he's not coming back as a priest. He's coming back as a king. And kings don't deal with sin. Kings execute judgments. Which is the, why the Bible says in the book of Jude that he comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment. The picture is clear in Scripture that the work of the sanctuary was a work that concluded in the getting rid of sin. In the type. We're not in the type. We're in the anti-type where now Jesus has entered into the heavenly sanctuary to do what? Put away sin. And that's the sanctuary Paul's talking about here. And when he's put sin away and finished that work, he will come a second time to take his people home.
Our first question, what does the connection with the 2300 days do to the sanctuary? It focuses us on the final intercessory work of Jesus as our high priest. Look, folks, if that's not what Jesus is doing, what is he doing? And here's what we have in Seventh-day Adventism. We say, well, no, Jesus isn't put... There's not going to be a generation where he cleanses the sin. We're never going to be without sin until Jesus comes. And then you know what we do? Well, why do we even do this thing with the sanctuary in 1844? And it suddenly is unimportant. You know why? Because it means nothing if it doesn't mean Jesus is there putting away sin. Don't you understand? It means that's what it was about. You go to the Day of Atonement, typical or anti-typical. He's putting away sin. You want to say it's not about putting away sin. It means nothing. And that's why it's today it's passe. New people come to the Adventist church, they don't even know about the sanctuary. Well, don't tell them about that, it's just going to confuse them. You know why? Because we talk about the tent poles and this, that, and the other, and not telling them about a Savior who's our high priest, who's saving to the uttermost and cleansing from sin. Because we don't want to alarm people or give them any kind of perfectionistic tendency. My wife just sent me a a link to this article. There's a school. This is the generation we live in. Oh, don't, don't discourage people. I've been hearing this since I've been back in the church, folks. I hear, well, you know, we, I remember it in the Adventist. We, we grew up, and I mean, it was, you had to, okay, so let me just break the news to you. We haven't been doing this in the church for 30 years. We're better now, right? No more guilt trips. Hey, we're doing it. Our marriages last longer, right? Our kids are more spiritual. Kids don't leave the church anymore because we haven't been hammering them with perfection, right? Wrong. Wrong. So who's going to stand up and say, hey, guess what? It's not working. I'm getting into tomorrow's sermon a little bit. (laughs) My wife sends me this article. There's a school. I'm not making this up. There's a school, elementary school, where they send the report card home to the parents. Let me see if I... Oh, man, I really... I really want... You've you got to hear this, and I want to read it to you. And I pulled it up on my phone earlier. I don't know. You might not want to hear it. It's, it's really sad... But it exemplifies some of what we're talking about. I just don't I just don't want to I just don't want to butcher this thing. Okay, listen. This is what it says on the report card. Oh no, this is a letter that goes with the report card. Listen. If after reviewing the enclosed report card, you would like us to develop a second version of this report card for your son with higher grades, please call da 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 da. <laughs> so if you're worried that your son or daughter are going to get so discouraged by the report card, look, you let us know, we'll send you another report card with false grades on it so your kid doesn't get their steam hurt. Are we that thin-skinned anymore? Okay, last part here. Look, the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days that Elamite says, what is this about? It focuses us on the final intercessory work of Jesus as our high priest in cleansing his people from sin, demonstrating the power of gospel in their lives, and thus bringing glory to God. Just as when we are unfaithful, we can bring... uh, um, Dishonor on God's name, so when faithful, 
Through his faithfulness, it brings honor to his name. It demonstrates his power over sin. Certainly not our power over sin, but his power over sin. So finally, I want to answer that second question from earlier. What does Revelation 14, 12 have to do with it all? Right? Because she said the commandments of God, the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, comma, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Links right in there. Revelation 14, 12. What does that have to do with the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days? Well, I practically just stated it, right? Because if, if what Jesus does in the sanctuary gives glory, isn't that what it says in the three angels' messages? Fear God and give him glory. It's the way they start. And then it says, for the hour of his judgment has come. How do we know when the hour of judgment came? Daniel 8, 14, right? The sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. Are you aware of that? Are you aware that the first angel that says the hour of judgment came is, is proclaiming the prophecy that was given in Daniel 8, 14, that they're linked, and proclaiming, in essence, the work that Daniel 8, 14 foretold that Jesus was going to go into the heavenly sanctuary, cleanse his people from sin, and come back and claim them as his own? This is why Ellen White said Daniel 8.14 is, quote, the foundation and central pillar of the Advent faith. Great Controversy 409. Now I want you to think about this. We're going to finish with this thought. Revelation 14.12 in light of the things we've looked at. What does Revelation 14.12 say? Here are they. Well, we don't talk that way. We don't talk here are they. We say here they are. Now think about it for a minute. Why does a person say here they are? Why do we use language like that? Here are your jeans. Oh, here are those scissors. Here are the breath mints, whatever. Why does a person say, here they are? What's the implication? Not just that they were lost, but what? There are some things I wish I could lose. Right? So it's not just that they were lost, but somebody's looking for them. Right? You're looking for them. Here are your jeans. Oh, great, I've been looking all over them. Oh, here are your car keys, right? Here they are implies that somebody's looking for them. When the Bible says in Revelation 14, 12, here are they, here they are that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus, somebody's been looking for them. Somebody's been looking for them. Go with me to Romans 8. Romans 8. Probably never thought you'd hear anything about last generation theology in Romans 8. I shouldn't even use that term. I shouldn't even, I really, I shouldn't use that term because, listen, my, my, my goal this evening is that Seventh-day Adventists would not worry about what one group or the other group says, but we would study our Bible, we would study the spirit of prophecy, and we would believe truth, whatever truth says, at least be willing to study it out. So when I, when I use a term like a theology, then I'm, it's, building into somebody's camp. I'm not trying to build into somebody's camp. But I want to direct you to uh, Romans chapter 8 and notice the language here of the Apostle Paul in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the what? With the glory which shall be what? Revealed where? In us. That word glory in the Bible, what does it mean? Uh, just, a, just, a, just a cursory study of the word glory will show you that the word glory is used many times in Scripture to refer to the character of God. The glory of God is the character of God. 
One example is in Exodus 33 where Moses says to the Lord, show me your glory. And God says, okay, Moses, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Whoa, whoa, I, I didn't ask for your goodness, I asked for your glory. Same thing. And I'll proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, no, no, I didn't say name, I said glory. Same thing. Name, glory, goodness, character. Israelites use names to express characteristics. They name their children for a reason. You understand what I'm saying? When Paul talks about the glory to be revealed in us, he's saying that though we're suffering, we go through hardships right now, though the Christian fight is, the, the Christian walk is a fight of faith. The sufferings of the present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. In other words, it's not now, it's future, but sometime in the future. And he applies the near future. We're going to see this in a moment. There's going to be a character revealed in us that isn't in us yet. You follow that? Look at the next verse. For the earnest, what? Now, in New King James, says expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. I like the New Century version on this. This is what it says. For the earnest expectation of the creation, uh, that's not what it says. I, I copied it wrong. I copied the same exact thing. Sorry. So anyway, but the, but the point is, He's telling us here that all creation is looking for something. What are they looking for? When it says the revealing of the sons of God, what does that mean? Listen, folks, this is Advent hope, right? Right? What is that hope? What is the Advent hope? Let's see Advent. Well, we're not the first Advent. We're the second Advent. What's the second Advent hope? Oh, we're going go to G go, go, go to heaven with Jesus when he comes again. The, the Bible speaks of the resurrection as the hope. But in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. John says in 1 John chapter 3, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. You remember that? He goes on to say, we do not yet know what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is, therefore those who have this hope in themselves purify himself even as he is pure. The hope wasn't just that Jesus is coming again. The hope was I'm going to be like him and I'm going to see him as he is. He's going to take away my sin and make me like him. That's the hope. That's the hope of Christianity. This is the hope the apostle tells us here in Romans 8 that all creation is waiting for. All creation is eagerly waiting. They're looking. They're looking to see the revealing of the sons of God. Right? Behold what manner of love. Who are these sons of God? The ones who are like Him. The ones who bear His image. All creation is waiting. And what does God say? Revelation 14, 12. Here they are. Here they are. Look, folks. There's going to be a last generation. For sure. And I'm fairly certain that some of us are going to be a part of it. Let me clarify. Not everybody's going to make it to the very end. You're aware of that, right? I believe the Bible would call this last generation the 144,000. That's what I believe. And the 144,000 are not the only people saved in Scripture. Some people say, well, I don't know if I could be... Hey, when we're talking about this last generation that lives to see Jesus coming... We're not talking about the only one saved. 
We're talking about those who, by the grace of God, he uses to say, here they are. Just like he was able to say with Job in the final chapter of the controversy, God is going to do the same thing with humanity. That's what Revelation tells us. Here they are. Here are the people who magnify what I have done and, and through the sacrifice of my son, what Jesus has done in the sanctuary above. Here they are. Are you going to be one of them? I want to finish with this thought. You know, this is one of the things that when I first came into the church, I didn't have somebody teach. I'm just, just from reading in the Bible in the writings of Ellen White, I was convinced that Jesus came to take away my sin. And that before he came again, that my sin would be gone. Not because I felt like it. Not because I saw how he was going to do it. Not because I could explain it. But because that's what he promised. And it was exciting to me. It was the most exciting thing of my experience. And for a long time, I really haven't said a whole lot. You know, I'm just like, well, I'm not going to talk about last year. It's so marginalized and everything else. And then I thought, I don't know when I started recently, and then I saw it in that, sat in that, that uh, panel discussion I told you about, and I thought, this is what stirred my heart. People say, oh, that discourages people. It didn't discourage me as a brand new Adventist. It gave me hope. It's like, you mean I can actually, by the grace of Jesus, be free from this? Yet, it's a bad word in, in Adventism. Well, you know, the rocks cry out sometimes. And I was listening to a song. I'm not going to give a total endorsement to the artist, but I want to share with you. There's, a, there's an artist named Stephen Curtis Chapman. Everybody heard of this guy? Christian contemporary guy. His, 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 I believe it was his last album. It's called The Glorious Unfolding. The whole album is how God is going to unfold his purpose in the final generation of humanity. He doesn't use terms like final generation. He's an evangelical. Christian art. The whole thing is about, I'm going to read to you a song the lyrics are part of a song called God Will Finish What He Started. Okay? This is how he starts the song. You take two steps forward and three steps back on a journey of a thousand miles. <laughs> you ever experienced that in your Christian life? And you cry and you pray, but you know at this pace you never will arrive. Right? So let's not even talk about it, right? Now he goes on to say this. God will finish what he started. No thread will be left unwoven. Nothing will be left undone. Every plan and every purpose that he has will be accomplished. And God will finish what he has begun. Now, he goes on the course, and I meant to have it written right here. He says, and we will stand as the ones completed. By the, it's either by the miracle of his love or by his grace. In other words, what's he saying? God's going to finish. It doesn't feel like it to us, but God started to work. He's going to finish it, and everything is going to be done. Not one thread will be left unwoven. I mean, I think even the language of that just moves me. You know, you think of a garment, and it's like, oh, you know, you ever have a shirt or a suit, and it's like, oh, there's that little thread, and it's sticking off there. But in the thread, in the fabric of your character, there's not, going to be one, there's not going to be one thing out of place. When God is done, it's all going to be... And this is what this, is, this evangelical guy is saying in this song. God's going to finish it. And when he does, we're going to be a testimony to the universe of the grace of God. Well, we know that as Adventists, don't we? Oh, no, let's not tell anybody. 
Have mercy on us. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. God will finish what He started. Is He going to finish what He started in you? Can you believe Him? Do you believe He's going to do it? Do you want to be part of it? Brothers and sisters, I want to be a part of it. If you want to be part of it, raise your hands with me this evening. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, I just pray tonight, we've looked at a lot of different things, and my mind isn't as clear as it could be. I pray your Holy Spirit would take these words, Lord, and if nothing else, stir in us a desire, a desire to review our history as a people, to understand the significance of Christ's priestly work, to rekindle in us a belief that Jesus is a complete Savior who will finish what he started. And Father, I pray that you'll help us not to form our Christianity based on what even a majority of voices might be saying around us, that we wouldn't be swayed so much by the opinions of men. But especially at this age in earth's history, we would be bound to your word and the testimony of your word, that we would have faith in your promises and believe indeed that you will finish what you started. May it be said of each one here, oh Father, may it be said of each one here, here they are. Here are my people that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We ask and pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.